0: Audio Podcast Network. Part hey lovelies, before you get into this week's Network. episode, I just wanted to give you a little heads up. The audio quality is definitely not up to a normal standard. But we were interviewing this amazing author and we didn't want to waste her time or lose the opportunity to talk to her. Fortunately, her audio comes through very well and she does most of the talking. So while this episode isn't quite where we want it to be audio wise, I still highly recommend that you listen just for what the author has to say. The story that she covers is so incredible and so important for us even today. So please... Have some patience, forgive us, and we'll be back with normal audio quality very soon. Bye. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. When you take two drunk podcasters and fold in an investigative journalist and author, you're about to find out. Welcome to this very special episode of Whining About History, where this week the two besties with Rusties are joined by New York Post journalist Isabel Vincent to whine about her incredible book, Overture of Hope: Two Sisters, Darren Flan, That Saved Opera's off, off of Jewish Stars from a Third Reich. Yep, the Nazis are back, but fuck them.
1: Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. That, thank you for that introduction, too. That was nice.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> I, always, I always freak out during the introduction because I'm like, this is where we make or break the entire interview. Yeah. It's our first impression. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book, Overture of Hope. It's, it's such an incredible read. I loved every second of it. I was actually listening to on audible when I was on airplane and I think some of the other passengers got nervous because I was just rolling my eyes and mouthing "fuck" every like 30 seconds because <laughs> it's heavy. There's, there's a lot of heaviness to it.
1: Well, thank you. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it, you know, talking about women lost to history. Certainly, Ida and Louise Cook, the protagonists of this story, were were completely lost to history.
0: Yeah, I had I had never heard of them. Yeah. And even the the era that this story takes place, pre World War II, let up like we don't really talk about this part of it. It's always about Hitler's rise right to power, the concentration camps. But this is a completely different lens that I don't think we're presented very often. So we're so sort of excited to talk about it. Great. Um, so first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came upon Ida and Louisa's stories? Because, like, sure. We all said like their stories have kind of been lost.
1: So I'm a reporter. I'm a reporter for the New York Post. Um, um, I, for the last, I've been doing that for the last 15 years. In my spare time, I write books. um, And I mean, I write books I'm really passionate about. um, And a lot of them sort of deal with women who have been lost to history. So uh, before this book, I did a book called Bodies and Souls, which was about um, Jewish women who were trafficked to Brazil and Argentina between 1869 and um, 1939. And they were married uh, to their pimps. Um, they were poor women from the shtetls of uh, Poland and Russia. And they thought they were going to a new life you know, in, in Brazil and Argentina. And in fact, they were uh, trafficked into in, prostitution. Um, and so what they did um, was because they were shunned by the jewish community they pooled their resources they bought a plot of land that became their cemetery because they could only return to to Ju- to their Judaism in death because nobody wanted to deal with them they were they were sort of considered unclean even though they were you know forced into prostitution so they actually it was the first time in like 1916 they bought the plot of land for the cemetery and they actually established a synagogue which was the first time ever in like world history that women had done this and they were a group of prostitutes and i really wanted to tell this story because it was um, it, it just showed how strong these women were and and how courageous and there's this you know great scene that you know was told to me over and over again that the last president of the society because they had a uh they had a group called the society of truth that's what they called their burial society she would volunteer to wash the bodies of her dead sisters as she called them so in prostitute purifying another prostitute you know at death was something that really moved me So, but moving forward to Overture of Hope, it was the sort of same kind of thing. Ida and Louise were two very ordinary women. I mean, ordinary, extraordinary, but they were clerks um, in the London law courts um, who came of age in the twenties. And um, they became opera fans, passionate opera fans, um, opera groupies. Uh, I mean, in the days when opera divas were like the Kim Kardashian. So every little thing that they did was reported in the press. Um, They gave interviews and everybody sort of swooned over them. So Ida and Louise, because they can't afford the regular tickets, start lining up outside of Covent Garden um, at the the Royal Opera House in, in order to get the cheap gallery seats. And that's where they meet a lot of their divas and conductors who become lifelong friends. And so one of the people they meet, um, a conductor named Clemens Krauss uh, from Austria uh, becomes, the, he's a very imperious guy. Um, and Ida is very nervous about taking his picture at first, but they eventually become friends. And hes he's Hitler's favorite conductor. He's in charge of the Munich opera, but he asks the sisters to please help him save Jewish musicians and scholars. And that's what the book is about. And I'd never heard of them either. Um, And I'd found out about them because a friend of a friend went to Yad Vashem, the um, Holocaust Memorial in Israel, and he saw a tree planted to Ida and Louise Cook, and he'd never heard of them. So when he got back to New York, he sort of said, I've never heard of these women. Like, can you do some research? And as soon as I, you know, heard the story, um, I was like, I have to tell this story. I mean, despite the fact that, um, the older sister, Louise, burned the archive of all of the people that they saved. Um, we don't know why she did it. At first, I thought she did it because they were spies, but you know the people who knew them and who I spoke to for the book said, no, no, they weren't spies. Um, Louise was just, you know a very committed and passionate uh, civil servant and didn't think that um, you know, they should be holding on to the details of people's lives. So, I mean, that's how I got into it. And, you know, that was a big problem in the research, which is why it took five years to sort of do. Um, And, you know, getting back to the whole opera connection, I was actually able to piece together what they had done in the third Reich um, largely through letters that they wrote to the very famous divas that they had befriended. And I found you know, Ida's letters in uh, archives in Italy, in New York City, uh, in um, uh, in England. Um, they were just sort of scattered around the world. And then I just sort of pieced it together, pieced, pieced the letters together, like sort of like putting t- a puzzle together to tell their story. So it's a very long winded answer to your question. It was perfect. Yeah,
0: we're okay. really honest. And I'm, I'm going to add the book that you mentioned to my reading list because. That's another women's history centric thing I have never heard of. I'm yeah. not surprised something yeah. like that has happened. It's hard to surprise us with how horrible things can get, especially for women, but that is just fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like a really good read. That'll definitely have to be next. Also, I, I feel like you did a really good job with crafting Overture of Hope as a narrative you know, especially like having to find all these different pieces of letters, because it really it read like a story and it was it was comprehensive and it was engaging. And so thank you for doing all that hard work so we could just enjoy it.
1: No, thank you very much. That's a big compliment because, I mean, nonfiction for it to be, I think, for it to be effective needs to be needs to read like fiction or else nobody's going to, you know, really nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to identify with the characters. And so in order to sort of build the characters from, you know, again, I, I had one publisher say, you know, when I first pitched the book, they said, yeah, but they burned their archive. How are you going to tell this story? And, you know, I'm a, I am ai work for the New York Post and um, over the years that I've been there, it's like, you, you cannot go to an editor and say, I can't tell this story. You have to find a way to do it. Um, and so I think that that training in sort of never giving up And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just can't, but you try everything you can in order to, you know, make it work. Like we will be sent out if there's a 5% chance, uh, you know, going to somebody's door to get an interview. And, you know, when I've said to my editors, but it's a 5% chance and they say, yeah, it's a 5% chance. So you have to go. Um, so this, it was the same kind of mindset. It's like, there has to be a way to tell this story. Um, they were honored by Yad Vashem. Um, again, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, there has to be a file about them. So I wrote to Yad Vashem. And sure enough, um, they were, they were honored in 1965. And again, at the same time that Raul Wallenberg and Oscar Schindler, you know, the big heroes of of the Holocaust are are being honored. And they are among the first women, but you haven't heard of them. Um, And I'll get into a little bit about, about why, but when I reached out to Yad Vashem, I was able to get sort of a trove of letters from the people that they'd saved. So what Yad Vashem required at the time in order to, to give them the um, award was they they went to everybody who'd been saved by them and they asked them to tell the story of what Ida and Louise Cook did for them. So I had, I had their letters of what had happened. And so I was able to sort of piece together you know, the letters that Ida had written and Ida had also written a memoir in 1950, um, which was called uh, We Followed Our Stars. And it was very much about their their life in the uh, opera world um, with with a little bit about what they had done uh, before the Second World War. But the book was very elliptical. I mean, she she doesn't tell the story. You know, she doesn't give out sort of personal um Uh, elements about the people she's writing about and she doesn't talk about what happens to the people they save. Um, And that was something that was very interesting to me. And you spoke earlier about, you know, most Holocaust World War II books, they sort of end at, you know, after people are saved, but then like what happens afterwards? Well, do they, are, are they able to really live in the new society that they're in, you know, without speaking the language you know, impoverished a lot of them without being able to do the jobs that they did back in Germany or Austria. This happened to most of the refugees that Ida and Louise Cook had saved. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, okay, we're free. That's great, which was great. I mean, they weren't in a concentration camp. But in many ways, some of them were tortured by, you know, what happened to their families um, back home. And one man um, just you know, just couldn't live with himself anymore after he found out that his mother had been gassed at Auschwitz. So it was a journey. I was
0: actually going to mention that because that was, that was a really powerful part because you think escaping Nazi Germany, it's like you cross the finish line. You're safe, everything's going to be okay, but really it's just the beginning of this new journey and you've had to flee your home and everything you've ever loved because of violence and persecution. And you have to try and piece your life back together in a foreign country where like you mentioned, you don't speak the language, you don't have the culture, you're constantly plagued with what's happening in my family. And then in his case, finding out that not everyone has made it.
1: Yeah. And
0: And again, that's also not something we talk about.
1: And and also not being able to work in his profession, which was he was the deputy conductor at the Vienna um, Opera House. He was um, sort of renowned around uh, across Europe for um, uh, training opera singers. He was, he was uh, probably the best opera coach in Europe at the time. So he makes it to England. He's like one of the last people, him and his wife that um, Ida and Louise Cook have saved. And um, he gets to London and you know, tries out for this small opera company and wants to be a conductor because he's an expert on Mozart. And he's promised at one point to conduct a Mozart opera. Uh, but at the last minute, the promise is rescinded and, and it's taken away from him. But he gets up in that on that morning as if he's going to do it anyway. And he puts on his tuxedo and then he sticks his head in the oven um, and, and kills himself. And we know this because the coroner's report in um, London was just so detailed. I mean, to the point where, you know, they had him in his tuxedo and then they had a whole like back history of what had happened to him and how he was unable to make it in the opera world in England and how he was really depressed about it. And also about the fact that, you know, he'd left his mother in Poland and she was, you um, Uh, She was captured and sent to Auschwitz where she, where she died. So, I mean, these were very heavy burdens for people, but the cooks, you know, the cooks, the the cooks help for, for these refugees didn't end with them getting out of uh, the Third Reich. It continued. And at one point we had, um, uh, among the first refugees they saved, who couldn't get a job um, in England. They stayed five years at the Cook's little flat that they rented in central London, you know, without paying Ida and Louise anything. And they were just, and these. this is what people said in their letters to Yad Vashem is that, you know, after they helped us leave, they never, they never abandoned us. We could always go to them and ask for help.
0: Yeah, that's so... Incredible because like you said, we either the stories either end when someone gets rescued or the people that rescued them, it was just like, Okay, I rescued you now, I need to go rescue other people and you don't always get this connection. So to hear that Ida and Louise like were like, No, we'll we'll help you always. This isn't like a one time thing is so different than some of the other stories you hear. It's so moving. There are a lot of parallels between, um, you know, the refugee crisis and, you know, immigration issues that we have today. I I know someone, she immigrated here with her husband, um, but she was not allowed to work because she didn't have, like, the proper visa. She was, like, here as a, a spouse, and this was, I think, just this is before the pandemic but during the pandemic when the united states is having this worker shortage she's like all i want to do is work and you won't let right. me and how much identity you have in working and how difficult that must be to acclimate to a new culture when you can't fully integrate in that way
1: yeah absolutely and that's what happened to a lot of them but they didn't give up on them they loaned the money um at one point they used their opera network, um, even in New York, uh, to find people jobs. They found this one woman uh, who had been a medical student in Frankfurt and ended up in New York. They found her job at Columbia University in the photo department. And then I actually spoke to her nephew after my book came out. I tried to reach him um, before that, but he'd never called me back. And then I finally caught up with him. And he had said that after um, she la- when she retired. So this is Lisa Bosch, one of the refugees. Um, after she retired from Columbia, she sort of became a bag lady on the streets of New York. And he said that she was haunted by, you know, what had happened to her in the war. Her fiance had been killed in front of her. Um, and she had, she had been barred from going to medical school. She was completing her, you know, her medical studies. And um, she never spoke German again, never wanted to go back to where she'd grown up. Um, So people, people really carried it with them, even, you know, even after they, they were saved. Carried the trauma. I mean,
0: it's, 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 I, I, I can't think of the word. I know a lot. It's traumatic. It just feels traumatic. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it just feels like so buried and in insurmountable. Um, which also is going to make our next question sound really stupid.
1: <laughs> oh, I love stupid questions.
0: Okay, perfect. You got Yeah, it, really. thanks. So I was like, great, it's my turn. Um, so Ida wrote romance novels under the name Mary Bruchelle. Um, are you a romance novel fan? Have you read any of her books, or did you? Oh, read I've read her? lots of.
1: I'm, you know what? I've read lots of her books because I wanted to see what she was writing, and they're actually not bad. You know, I, I'm like Harlequin romances are not something I. I read, but I really felt I needed to read them. And it's, I mean, they're really chaste because she's writing them, her first one she's written, she writes in 1936, um, but she writes 200 of them. And, you know, another thing that I forgot to mention is that she uses the royalty cash in order to help, you know, um, she uses part of it as guarantees for some of her, um, of some of the refugees because they needed... If if they were coming to England to await a visa in the United States, they had to bear their their expenses, their their living expenses, and their food had to be guaranteed for the whole time that they were there. And people would have to put up the cash. So Ida did that for a few people, you know, with the money that that she'd earned. But the the Roman, you know, it's fascinating because these were two, by their own um, by their own description of themselves, they were two squares um and they were very unglamorous <laughs> but they lived through this world of opera of melodrama and then the romance novels they were also unmarried sisters um and they because they came of age at a time of so-called surplus women in England when you know women were faced with the fact that 750,000 men had died in the first world war so there were many more women than men um and there was a lot you know there were a- also a lot of 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 gay women and they sort of were open about it because unlike gay men who like there was a law against that in England at the time but there was nothing about um there was nothing against women. Um, and, um, a lot of Ida and Louise's friends were well-known, um, lesbian writers like Nancy Spain, um, um, and others, uh, and, and they hung out with them. Now I'm not saying that they, you know, they were because they don't ever talk about it, but Ida does say that, um, you know, that they didn't want to devote themselves, they didn't want to get married and they felt that dignified spinsterhood and that's her phrase was what they, was how they wanted to live their lives. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and they just did it, but they lived this romantic life through Ida's books because they both worked on Ida's books. If you look at the copyright, okay. um, it's often Ida and Louise Cook on some of the books. I found that very interesting. And, um, even though it's Mary Birchell on on the cover, and they also yeah. lived, you know, very dramatically in going into Nazi Germany and Austria and saving people. So they had these very intense lives, but on on the other hand, you know, to look at them, they were very plain and sort of ordinary. And again, they use this to their advantage because if they weren't getting a second look going through customs, you know, with all the jewelry that they were bringing back, and, you know, one of the ways that they brought back people's assets after they, because if you were coming out of Nazi Germany or Austria, you couldn't take more than 14 Reichsmarks with you. So a lot of people converted their assets to jewelry and gave it to Ida and Louise, who would plaster it on their Marks and Spencer dresses thinking that any border guard would just think it was all fake. And they just did this over and over again. And they got through and they stuffed their purses with all kinds of Swiss watches and jewelry. And they, if they were ever caught, um, they would revert to what they called the nervous British spinster act, which, um, and they would say, well, you know, we're going to the opera and we need all this stuff. And we don't, we don't trust anybody in England to, to look after it. So we're taking it with us um so they they had a lot of chutzpah
0: i i love that so yeah. much in playing especially like this this idea that women are playing on these sexist tropes to their advantage you know they're they're like plain and unassuming and as they said squares and they're wearing all this jewelry and i know in the book you mentioned people would think it was costume jewelry because no one in their right mind would be wearing that much actual jewelry well and also to play up the like oh i'm I'm an unmarried woman i have no one to keep this safe if i don't wear it with me and the people are just like oh okay like like, oh yeah like the amount of playing into that sexism because they knew what the like how the world works and they were like yep people are going to believe this i also want to make a joke about men knowing nothing about jewelry but i also know nothing about jewelry so if i saw them wearing this like big beautiful emerald necklace i would also probably think it was it was fake jewelry
1: right um and um yeah and the fur coats you know like they had a whole they had a whole military exercise around fur coats in which they would uh, ask women who wore fur coats in england to rip off their labels um, and then once they got to Germany or Austria, in order to bring back the fur coats from there, they would rip off the German and Austrian label and they would put in the, the British labels so that it looked like it was a British fur coat. I mean, they thought it through. The one thing that they refused to yeah. take was earrings for pierced ears because they were horrified about getting their ears pierced. So they were just like, there's no way. Like that was the one thing that, right. that sort of prevented them from doing that. Which is funny.
0: But so you're telling me they weren't into that scene in The Parent Trap, where the twins like pierce the peer one with girl a needle with a needle, and they, they were hair.
1: horrified. That they they, they <laughs> thought that was like barbaric. So
0: it's so wild. I, I I think it's so interesting too how they are just so unabashedly themselves throughout all of this.
1: Yes. Yes. Definitely. And. You know, and then that works against them because in the 1960s, when they're approached to do a film and when they're encouraged by their friend, the actor Laurence Olivier to, to do a film and they meet Josh Logan, the great American producer of South Pacific and uh, Paint Your Wagon, um, he he comes up with like a very Hollywoodized treatment of, you know, what happened to them and there's a love story in it. And so I found the letters that Ida had sent to Josh Logan at, at among his papers at the Library of Congress, and she writes him these letters saying, "Well, you know, we we like the story, but it's it's sort of a fake story on a true theme." And then she decides she's going to write a treatment, and it begins with that that immortal line that I already shared, which is. This is the story of two squares. So you can imagine how Hollywood is going to respond to that at a time when, like Audrey Hepburn is, you know, a big star. They're just going to look at that and not know what to do with it. Um, so unfortunately, that's I think one of the ways that they were lost to history. You know, you have you have all these movies about Oscar Schindler. You have Schindler's List. You've got a ton of documentaries, and then you've got Raoul Wallenberg. Um, again, the two men that I, you know, refer to just cause they got, you know, they were given the righteous Gentiles distinction at about the same time, but you have nothing about the women. Um, and, um, and, and I just think, I just thought it needed to be celebrated because, um, what they did was truly extraordinary.
0: And I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And I think in any, anything, there are going to be names that just kind of become household I remember seventh grade, we had to do a report for English class where we had to pretend to be a historical figure, read a bunch of books about them, and then pretend we were having an interview with another classmate who was also a historical figure and, like, have a conversation. And I I was Oscar Schindler. <laughs> and I, I'm like, I would be, I know. But I'm like, oh, man, I would have loved to, like, know more about these, these women who are
1: I mean, heroes, for lack of a better term, during this yeah. really horrible time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and
0: like you so, said earlier, they oh, just,
1: sorry, no, they were just themselves too. Um, and they, you know, and that's, again, when you go back to, I mean, the women I've profiled, like the the ones I was talking about, the prostitutes, they wanted to be they were fiercely Jewish. They wanted to be Jewish and whether you're Jewish or not, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of um, it's sort of heartfelt and, and it just shows like an incredible amount of courage and fortitude Um, in the same way, you know, the Cook sisters, you know, were given a task uh, and, and um, their help was needed. They didn't hesitate and they just did what, what they thought they had to do, um, which, which was great. And, you know, they didn't think that they were being brave. Like that's the other thing is they didn't sit around saying, Oh, we were, we're so brave. This took such courage. They just, they didn't think it through. They just did it.
0: When you were talking about Ida's memoir and her just not really addressing this work, I'm like, no, that's, that's the part we really want to know about, but I'm sure it was just kind of, This is what
1: they did. Yeah. Yeah. and, And and I think there was a fear, like she does address it, but it doesn't go far enough. I think there was a fear of violating people's privacy. And you know, when people said to me, Oh, Louise burned the records because she didn't want to violate people's privacy, I mean, maybe so, like maybe that was something that really drove them because when I went to England for the first time to do this research. I tracked down where Ida and Louise um, lived with their parents because they live with their parents um, in the family home. And then they rented this little flat, uh, this one bedroom flat in um, uh, in Central London. And I knocked on the door of the house and the the woman uh, a woman came out and said, yeah, I know why you're here. Um, we didn't buy it from them. We bought it from um, another family who had bought it from them. And she said, "We don't really want to talk to you. Um, they've come around. The governments come around and wanted to put a plaque on our house, saying this is where they lived. But we don't. We don't want any of that. And when I reached out to Ida and Louise's um, family, they have a great nephew in London. Um, he was, you know, the same way. It's like I, you know, thanks for reaching out. We don't have any. We don't have any materials. Like essentially, go away." um so there's this you know people not wanting to expose themselves so much i don't know if it's a british reticence thing or uh but i was i was kind of surprised by that so i think the same kind of thing drove them well
0: and
1: i'm sure in a time where you know, like
0: during the whole thing that Nazis are stealing records to find people. I'm sure there's also that fear of like, if this ever happens again, I don't want to be the one that has this information that that helps them find anyone.
1: Yeah, uh, I think you're right.
0: especially because like the invasion of Britain, they didn't know whether or not that was going to happen or not. Right,
1: right. They thought there was a point where they could have lost the war.
0: I'm, I'm so sorry. There's like a delay between the, the audio and the video, so I keep interrupting you and I'm not trying. No, no, don't worry. Um, so one of the things that really surprised me most, and you kind of touched on it, was how I didn't least receive so much attention for being devoted opera fans, or even able to meet stars of the time, like Viroka or And it feels like being a fan of Lady Gaga getting pressed about being a Lady Gaga fan and then she's like oh my god I love you like was this common was there something about them that garnered this attention because as ordinary as they were they were pretty extraordinary before getting people out of Nazi occupied Germany
1: sure and I I think well especially Ida was pretty courageous about approaching people um and it was it was a it was maybe a more innocent time um, because I wondered about that too. I mean, she made friends with these people so easily um, and, you know, by just standing outside the stage door and asking for autographs and then asking to have, to be able to take their photographs. And then, and then they would start a correspondence in the days when people actually sent letters. So there's a lot of letters at the Victorian Albert archives from Amelita Gallicorci, who was a big diva in the 1920s and 30s, she was big, she was a, a soprano at uh, the Metropolitan Opera. And again, names that, you know, people don't think about in, in the opera world anymore. Rosa Poncel, the great Rosa Poncel, um, another great American diva, Um, they wrote to her after the war. They had heard her in 1929 in London, and they'd never forgotten that concert. And um, during the war, during the worst times of the war and the bombing, Ida said to her sister, you know, I'm going to, if we make it through this, I'm going to go back to the United States and I'm going to, I'm going to meet Rosa Poncelle. And so they made a promise to each other. And then after the war, Ida read in the papers that uh, Rosa Poncel had married one of the sons of the mayor of Baltimore. So she writes her a letter, like a very heartfelt letter about what her music and her voice had meant to the sisters during that bleak time. And she addresses it, Rosa Poncel, Baltimore, USA. And it gets to her. And Rosa Poncel opens the letter and sends them a telegram and they set up a call. Um, And this was one of the most moving things that, you know, I came across. Um, She sets up a call after after the end of the war and um, she calls Ida long distance and Ida's assembled, you know, all her opera fans, uh, the other opera groupies, about 30 people in her little apartment. Uh, and um, to hear Rosa Poncel on the phone. And at one point in the phone conversation, Rosa Poncel says, shall I sing for you? And she sings, you know, over a vast ocean and many miles, uh, the Pache Pache aria from La Forza del Destino. And Ida passes the phone, the receiver, to everybody in that room. Um, so they could hear like a snippet of the great soprano. And this was so moving to me, I thought, wow, um, I have to tell this story, if only to, if only to tell that scene, uh, which was so beautiful. Um, so, so music, again, you know, the other, the other thing that they were passionate about, even though their lives seemed boring on the surface, was the actual music. I can't I can't
0: even imagine that. Like one being able to just address a letter with a name and a city and it get to the person, let alone a famous person who these days is going to go through all their like press people Bye. first and you're if you get anything back it's not personal. You you actually are had better luck tweeting at them. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And then the second thing to be holding this woman and her voice in your mind during these incredibly difficult times. To survive them, and then be able to talk to her and listen to her sing again on the phone, I can't. I, like I cannot even fathom what that must be like, and this probably this like euphoric sensation of like I'm still here, I made it. Yes, I assume yeah. everyone in the room was crying because I would have been. Yeah. And at a the time when I can really think of is like when celebrities go to children's hospitals, dress up as superheroes, like the
1: characters. That's play. the closest. Yeah. I don't even know if that. Yeah. And it, it at a time when making a long distance call was a very big deal, like you had to wait on one end, you know, before you were patched through. And it was almost miraculous, you know, that you could you could talk to the other end of the world you know, and things that, you know, we've forgotten, like the power of a letter. I, I think about that a lot because, you know, sometimes I, when I'm teaching like journalism students, when I do seminar and they're like asking me, like, how do you interview people? Like, how do you get their attention? Um, I've sent emails, you know, I've called um, and I've, you know, I've said to them, well, have you, you know, maybe if you send them a letter with a stamp on it, It's so bizarre to get a letter these days. Think about it that immediately you're going, it's something so different that you're going to uh, pay attention. I did that once when I was trying to get an interview with the former governor of New York State, um, Elliot Spitzer, and um, he wasn't returning my calls. I couldn't get through on email. um, So I sent a letter to his home just with a forever stamp on it. And a couple of days later, he called me. It was so shocking, uh, right? Uh, so these are things that we've forgotten, but maybe we should bring that back. I mean, who writes long letters anymore or who even writes letters? Like m- my daughter, um, w- once I sent her to the post office, like really, what's that? You know, um, yeah. so. I actually still get anxious going to the
0: post office
1: sometimes. <laughs> I love the post office.
0: I do too. I'm a, I'm a big fan up But yeah, you're right. Like, not only is it to receive a letter, not only is it in this time, like a novel, like now a novelty, but like, yeah, it piques your curiosity. Also, it's kind of exciting when you get like a hand addressed letter, you're like, ooh, who like, for people that like, because I had pen pals growing up and stuff. And so like, I've, that's still a thing. But yeah, like this younger generation, like, I don't think understands the excitement of getting like a handwritten letter because they have probably never done it right do you mean someone's writing to me not to contact me about my card extended warranty yeah
1: <laughs> right right exactly um so it, th- those are magic magical things i mean in the world we live in now um so um i was happy to i was happy to go back to that and just read through you know ida ida wrote 200 books but her letters are so long. I don't know how she had time to do anything. Like, they're totally prolific. Like, they go on and on and on. And they're really well written.
0: I get a lot of text, and I'm like, I'm going to save this for later when I have more emotional energy, <laughs> let alone, like, a multi-page letter. Yeah. Uh, uh, so... Emily pronounced the same beautifully, and I'm going to butcher it, so I'm going to ask Emily to pronounce it again. Opera star Villarroca Rusalek and her husband Clemens Krauss are the ones, you kind of mentioned this, like, they're the ones that kind of recruited the sisters, and they're the ones that really reveal to them the seriousness of what's going on in Germany. Um, Do you think the average person, like, knew or suspected just how bad it was? Like, some of the German people I know knew. I've read some other historical fiction, but like the people in Britain or the people surrounding the sisters, do you do you think the average person kind of understood what was going on, or it was very much a like, well, Germany's over there and it's terrible, but it's not that terrible.
1: Well. I... I certainly think it was eye-opening to Ida and Louise when they went on that first trip to Frankfurt, uh, when they met their first Jew. I mean, um, Mietje Meyer-Leisman, the uh, the opera scholar came to visit them in the UK in about 1936 or so, or 1935. And she was there because she was looking for a safe haven. She She knew she had to leave. And she was from a very, you know, wealthy family. She was a teacher at the conservatory in Frankfurt. Her husband owned a very successful business. Well, he he had to arianize his business. Um, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't keep it anymore. And um, she was kicked out of the conservatory. So they were pretty desperate. They needed a place to go. And I think that stuff was in the papers. Like certainly there was reporting about the Nuremberg laws, certainly in America. Like, you know, when I was when I looked through the old copies of The New York Times, like there were front page articles in the 30s about Jews being kicked out of the Automotive Society of Germany. And you think that doesn't sound like a big deal, but then in combination with everything else, they've been kicked out of schools, they've been kicked out of, you know, all of these other institutions, they can no longer work as doctors, you know, all of that was sort of cumulative. I think that only only after they went to Germany and sort of talked to people and understood what it meant to have All of your rights eroded. And the one thing I remember, the one thing that struck them was that at a dinner party, somebody said, Oh, so and so died because he couldn't be attended by um, an Aryan nurse and doctor. And Ida and Louise are like, What? Um, And so this sort of, you know, I think for them um, conveyed the full horror of what was going on. that, um, um, that these these people were just losing their rights and and they couldn't get it into their civil servant heads,, uh, you know, that this was happening. There was no jurisprudence, there was no, there was nothing. It was just like they were becoming, non-citizens and so they watched that so you know to answer your question did other people know it was certainly in the papers and it was certainly in the jewish papers in london like the jewish chronicle was pretty good at at um you know but not everybody was reading it if you were outside that community how much you know how much credence were you giving to it and how much attention were you paying it um and again with ida and louise it was because they they saw it firsthand and they felt it firsthand when they when they when they went to germany that they realized it was a critical situation but but yeah i mean people i people knew what was going on yeah
0: i think that's interesting what you said like the new york times publishing oh you know people they been picked out of the German Automotive Club and that doesn't seem like a big deal. And it's like, well, that's the information that's getting out. Right. If they're if they're targeting people based on their religion for something so, you know, arguably non-consequential, like, what else are they doing? And they're, and even if that's the first step, that's not where it's going to stop. Right. right. Well, and they did it in such a way that at, because news trickled out slowly, they did it in stages for that reason so that people wouldn't put it together as like super fast. They're like, Oh, they're getting kicked out of this. Okay. Like that sucks. And then they kick them out of somewhere else. And it was kind of this like very targeted, but very slow, like, okay, we're going to like just quietly shove them out of everything and hope people don't really pay attention to it. Well, not only not pay attention, but have a sense of apathy. I don't want to say not care. Because I think when it comes down to it, all of us, you know, care to some degree, but our emotional energy can be limited. And so when it just, when it seems like something like that, it's almost you categorize it in your mind as like, do I really even care about this or care less about it? And I think that's so powerful that Ida and Louise witnessed it firsthand. And that's a huge testament to witnessing that kind of thing firsthand and talking to the people it's actually affecting and how eye-opening that can be. Because it's very easy to be dismissive of the atrocities going on around us until you talk to someone who's actually experiencing them. And right. you have to look them in the eye and be like, is it that big of a deal? You can't do it. And if you can, you suck. <laughs>
1: Sorry. <laughs> Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this a lot of a lot of stuff happens today that we're like, uh, really, is that really happening? And, you know, look at everything that's going on in the Ukraine. Um, I mean, I, you know, sort of was on a train once and there was a young man on the train and he was very confused. He spoke sort of halting English. And um, the conductor came up to him, and he hadn't paid his ticket. Um, and um, paid his ticket. And I, I, I looked at him and said, "Where are you from?" And he said, "I'm, I'm from the Ukraine, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get out." It was my Ida and Louise moment, right? Um, I'm trying to find a yeah. safe haven. And in, in um, like, he worked on a cruise ship, and he was, he ended up being in New York when all this stuff was coming down in the early days. So I uh, put him in touch with all of these diplomats that I knew, like the Canadian diplomat in new york and and some um pretty important people in the Ukrainian community. And then, you know, he was able to get his family out. Uh, but that was like one person. there were so many. Um, but but yeah, I had that that feeling like you either just look away or or you try to help this person
0: that's one of those like kismet moments you, you read these memoirs of survivors you know of, of war and genocide and pogroms and all that stuff and inevitably there's always a moment where there just happens to be the right person there at the right time yeah who connects them with the right resources and it's, it's always like how does that happen well really all of us have that capability like Granted, I don't know the Canadian ambassadors anywhere, but still, you know, it's it's just even a matter of stepping forward and being like, what can I do? What what can I personally do right now? And that's what's that's- so incredible about reading stories like Ida and Louise is because you really get to confront, like, well, what would I have done if I was in that situation? Yeah. And yeah, what and I, am I doing now?
1: And I, I just happen to know people because I, you know, I come across them for the, for interviews and stories I'd done. So I happened to have been at an event at the Canadian Consulate in New York. And so I said, you know what, try, I'll I'll write this guy on your behalf. Like, and and you know, to his credit, the it was the Canadian Consul General. He actually, you know, he actually helped this guy on the train. Like I didn't think I thought, oh, nobody's gonna care. But, you know, I, I think at that moment when and this is just after Ukraine had been attacked, that people were shocked and, and maybe more willing to help than they are now. Like, I don't I don't know what the situation is like now, but in those in those first desperate days, um, I think people were I think people were watching. And and if they could do something, they did. I mean, I like to think so. Well,
0: And there's the power of a letter again.
1: Yes. Yes. And reaching out. And just like, what did I have to lose? Nothing. Um, and I just said, look, I met this guy. I don't know anything about him, but he seemed totally desperate. He has kids who are back in Ukraine. He's got a wife. Um, he's trying to get out. He seems like a nice guy. That was it. I,
0: that's just so incredible to me. Like just this this one-on-one connection helped not only him, but his whole family. In the yeah. time, where like... It, I think sometimes we read these stories from World War II and the Holocaust, and we have a, a beginning date and an end date. And we kind of know, like, okay, you just got to make it through this year. You just got to make it through this month. But right now, none of us know what's going to happen and how long it's going to last. And it's, it's overwhelming and daunting. Only well, when you stop, think think about it. Small. <laughs> well, you stop to think about it. Small. Totally if you stop to think about it. Can't be overwhelmed if you don't stop long enough to think well, about it. After- right um but it's not the, apathy but it's if, if you're actively doing stuff to work toward it you're not as worried about the end date so I'm not saying like don't work toward the problem I'm just saying it's less overwhelming if you're working towards sol- solving the problem I I get that but just this happenstance connection helps us manage yeah,
1: that family that's insane and I that's so cool that you were able to do that I mean I didn't even think about it. I just thought, "Oh, I you know, I was there. I'll, you know, maybe they'll say no, but right. but maybe they'll help this guy." So, um right. so they did. They if, he he if managed to get visas to Canada.
0: When when someone decides to write your story to turn over this recording and some of your records should you burn them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Maybe I should, yeah.
0: Yeah, you. I mean, you were, you were saying Ida and Louise didn't think about like, oh, I'm, I like how actively am I helping people? And you just said the same thing. You are like, I didn't think about it. It's just like that's so cool that that connection,
1: of I mean, like, no, but I understand. I, 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 but at the moment, I thought Ida and Louise, <laughs> maybe because <laughs> I just lived with them for five years, like they were part of my daily life. Um, I. Was really immersed in their lives as much as I could, so I just acted out of that. Of the
0: reason these stories yeah. are so important to tell. So, you, so one of the ways that the Cook sisters helped people flee was by smuggling out their their valuables and jewelry, because the Nazis were forced Jewish people to relinquish all their belongings, money, and property in exchange for getting out. And Could you kind of just expand? I know we already kind of talked about it, but just expand on the importance of this because people are literally really wishing everything they have in the world in exchange for their lives in some cases.
1: So uh, before the Second World War, if you were Jewish um, and you wanted to leave, the Nazis actually allowed you to leave provided that you left all of your, you gave up your company um, if you had one and you left all of, anything you left you had to do an inventory of what you owned and you had to give most of it up some stuff you could take and you could take out of the country for most people uh 14 Reichsmarks, which is really a pittance so what people did and at that time you know gold um was gold and diamonds and other precious stones were like currency so they would take so they would just buy as much gold as they could as much jewelry as they could stuff that could be portable stuff that you could you know maybe sew into the lining of a of a dress um stuff like that 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 it was movable um and so what one of the things that Ida and Louise did when they showed up um, in these different cities in Austria and Germany is they would go meet the would-be refugees. And, um, you know, even before they checked into their hotel and before they went to their opera for the night, because the excuse that they had to go to these places was they were going to attend the opera. um, And Clemens Krauss and his wife would put on operas for them. I mean, they would put on operas for their people, but But they would allow them at, you know, certain times to choose what opera they wanted. Um, So during the day, they would go to meet the would-be refugees. They would take the jewelry. They would take the fur coats. And they would go into their hotels already with all this stuff. So if anybody was watching, you know, they couldn't be accused of suddenly getting all this stuff. While they were right. in whatever city they were, so they would arrive with all the stuff, and they would arrive with all the jewelry plastered all over them, and they would wear it. Um, so <laughs> it was sort of hiding in plain sight. And then yeah. once they left, and they only they were only able to go on weekends because Louise still worked as a copying typist in the law clerks and only had the weekends off um once they got back they you know put it in the bank for safekeeping, and the refugees would only get it back once they made it to england so it was like a smuggling
0: it is and it's such incredible forethought of being like okay we're gonna like make sure we're showing up to the hotel so yeah that if someone is watching us or someone catches our movement it's It's not out of the ordinary we always show up to the hotel with the fur coats and when we're leaving we already have them. like the amount of forethought and planning and then to just go to an opera i'm like that is absolutely insane plus then you know or because you told us as we know that they had to then like swap out like probably in the hotel room swap out the labels you know the german for the english and like all these things on the fur coats and stuff to make sure that all this stuff and can then come home with them. And exactly. then you think that this is just a like weekend side. Right. <laughs>
1: They're just yeah. doing this. All the weekend. Yeah, exactly.
0: I just like this whole story is so incredible. It's it's so wild. It's like how opera fandom becomes altruistic fandom becomes like saving people from genocide.
1: Yeah, yeah. By
0: being opera nerds. Right. It's just the most amazing thing. I love it. (laughs) So on top of, like, helping people get their belongings out, you really explore, like, the bureaucratic nightmare that these people that are trying to flee for their lives are faced with when attempting to leave Nazi Germany before the war even starts. And it was so heartbreaking to read that these people are having to like fight for their lives with application forms and all this like stupid paperwork. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you think there's any
0: lessons we we can learn from this?
1: Well, unfortunately, like nothing's changed, right? I mean, and the United States had like a fairly severe quota system for Jews. Um, So if you, so the way that worked is you would get a visa to go to the States, but it, but sometimes it took two years under the quota system because every year they had a certain number that they would allow in. Um, so you, you needed a safe haven. And that's why that's why, that's where Ida and Louise often came in is that they, they found a way for them to stay in England for the couple of years so they didn't have to stay in Germany or Austria where they might be rounded up and put in a concentration camp. But yeah, it was a lot of bureaucracy and every form had to be filled out. Ida spent uh, a lot of her time filling out forms, going from office to office in the UK, uh, You know, calling in favors to friends that she knew sort of in highly placed bureaucratic positions. You know, when other people said no, she appealed to people she knew to try to like work the system and, you know, and and she did it she she just wouldn't take no for an answer so yeah the, unfortunately you know bureaucracy is everywhere uh but it was particularly bad then especially if you were a jew trying to to go into another country
0: i can't i just i like can't even like i've said this so many times this interview but i can't imagine that like to know particularly for the jews Trying to escape Germany, like to know what's going on, to know what happens if you don't get out. And then to have to, yeah, sit there and fill out forms and then be potentially stuck in a country you don't know for two years to then move to a different country, all while you're still worried about anyone that got left behind. Like, I can't even fathom that. Like, I would be, oh, angry. Like, I would be anger filling out those forms. I would be so mad. (laughs) Completely illegible. Um, right, and I, then, I had a friend who's a, a disabled veteran, and I would help him navigate like the VA system and different nonprofits and other like charitable action. That was such a fucking nightmare. And in the United States, where we really pride ourselves on loving our veterans and supporting our military, you know, just getting him the most basic sense of help was and, and navigating that was a really nightmare. I can't imagine for these people fleeing literal death to get to another country that's like, well, take like 10 of you this year. Try again next year. Don't worry about it. It's fine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And um, I mean, bureaucracy is one of the scariest things, I think, um, anywhere. Um, If you've ever had to live with I lived in Brazil for about seven years and the bureaucracy there was just insane like you had to I had to line up to pay my bills at the bank I mean I'm I'm not complaining I'm just like it was it was really eye-opening um I mean we're very lucky here in North America <laughs> um, even though we think we have a lot of bureaucracy but there it was just insane that's
0: just and I mean, there are so many parallels in this story to to today, and that's why I think the story is so important. Um, I know that your time is very precious. Uh, so we just have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, so Clemens Krauss, as you mentioned, Hitler's favorite conductor, he proves to be kind of a controversial figure due to his success under the Nazi regime, but also in his part in helping Jews escape Germany and like empowering Ida and Louise. You know, what do you and I didn't, really make your feelings very clear about him, but what do you think from your research? What kind of conclusion did you come
1: to? I think it was a very complex hero in the same way that um, Oscar Schindler is a complex hero. Oscar Schindler um, saves a thousand Jews uh, by putting them to work in his factory in Poland um, and allowing him to use them as slave labor to make money but he also saves their lives. Clemens Krauss um, is a very ambitious conductor who uses the Nazis and his proximity to power to rise within the ranks of the classical music world at a time when Hitler is kicking out, you know, conductors and singers and, and just about anybody who was Jewish and anybody who was writing modern you know, modern operas, like let's take the opera world. He didn't like the modernists. Like so, they, so there were a lot of vacancies in the classical music world and especially in the opera world that um, Clemens Krauss was very keen to take. He was very ambitious. On the one hand, he's writing letters to Hitler's secretary, Martin Bormann, and asking for the use of the Jewish apartments um, that were vacated after the Jews in Munich were sent to concentration camps. Um, yet, uh, because he needed, he needed he needed housing for his musicians who he was bringing from all over Germany and Austria to Munich, which was the real centerpiece of culture or was to be the centerpiece of culture under Adolf Hitler. And certainly the Munich opera house was to be the most important cultural um, venue uh so you have him doing that without blinking an eye but then you also have him risking his life and the li- and the and the life of his wife by asking Ida and Louise to help him save these these Jewish um musicians that that worked with him um and um you know he couldn't write any of this down because he would be sent to a concentration camp so it was very sensitive and at the end of the war, he, I mean, Krauss was never a, me- a member of the Nazi party, uh, but at the end of the war, he goes through a denazification trial because he's so close to the higher up Nazis. And um, he's, he is punished in that Austria doesn't allow him to conduct um, to conduct anymore, to conduct a symphony, to conduct an opera and this for him is like a very big blow that eventually leads to his death but he is a complex hero and often things are not black and white in war um, and certainly this i felt was an opportunity to really tell you know and and really bring to light what what he had done because in letters that Ida and Louise wrote to Yad Vashem when they were you know writing back and forth about the the award that they were getting Ida makes a point of saying that I hope that you recognize Clemens Krauss and his wife, because without them, we wouldn't have done it. They were the ones who were the mainspring of our work. So I was really, you know, excited to delve into his life and to try to figure out, you know, his motivation and all of this. I think that's an
0: excellent point that he's, you know, complex and that war is not black and white. it, it i mean as you're reading the book you come to your own kind of conclusions and opinions about it like i was also grossed out by some of the things he did like occupying the formerly jewish apartments but also i'm like people like joseph mengele got away but this guy's getting nailed like, yes come on
1: yeah yeah well he, well, he didn't a lot and he, he was a very um patriotic austrian um he didn't think. The, I don't know, like at the end of the war, he he goes back to Vienna at a time when it's sort of chaotic and he does conduct an opera like these are in the last days of the war. Um, And, you know, he was pretty slammed by his fellow Austrians because he he was accused of treason. And the treason for them was that he took away some of Austria's greatest performers and took them to Germany. Like this was a big deal in the opera world. This was treasonous. This was, you know, leaving Austria behind. So I think, you know, a lot of the bad feeling, yes, it stemmed from his proximity to the Nazis, but it was also, they felt he was being, um, you know, he was being disloyal to his roots in Austria.
0: Yeah. We have one more question for you. The last
1: one. This will be the easiest question of the interview.
0: This is going to make or break the whole interview. Do (laughs) it. Like the intro. Uh, One, we want to thank you again for being here and then the last question is, where can our listeners
1: engage and find you online and find your book? And Um, your other
0: amazing books.
1: So all my books, you know, a lot of them are on Amazon. Um, some of them are out of print, but you can probably still get them. Um, um, the prostitutes book is called bodies and souls. Uh, and it's, it's, pretty easily findable. Like they're, um, they're teaching it at, um, at, um, at Hunter college in New York. So students are able to find it. That's so cool. Yeah, I know. And it's, you know, I was approached a few years ago because uh, by a group of Jewish women lawyers um, who had read my book um, and they said, you know, we just had to call you because we deal with um, victims of sex trafficking in lower Manhattan. And most of them are native women from or indigenous women from Mexico whose pimps marry them and then bring them to New York. um, And then um, they're made to work as prostitutes. And it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same pattern that these Jewish women had to deal with. And so, you know, that was really interesting to me. And sort of before I knew it, it became part of this human rights course at Hunter College and the National Council of Jewish Women, um sort of adopted the book and i did you know a few seminars with them uh but it's amazing how history repeats itself and i write for the post so i write about corruption a lot of the time but um you can go to the new york post website and punch in my name that's
0: that's incredible so i don't know if you saw us looking at like other screens and phones and stuff but we were both looking at bodies and souls I found it. and I just want to volunteer my services. I see it's not on Audible. If you need it, <laughs> to read it, all right, and record Thank it, you. I will do that. I have a very melodious voice. <laughs> well, I'm trying to get Ida energy. Yeah, you like, are. What's the worst that can happen? She says no,
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Well, thank you. We'll link to all of this in the show notes, but thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. It's been an honor. And thank you so much for bringing Ida Louisa's stories to light because they deserve to be told. They need to be told. And I think, unfortunately, they're relevant today and probably in the future.
1: And I I love what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's so important sort of bringing to... Uh, bringing to light, like, really women who've been forgotten by history. I mean, that's so important. So, thank you. It's been an honor.
0: Thank you. I'm not crying. It's fine.
1: <laughs> thank you. We really appreciate we were, like
0: so much. We know you have to get going. And so, we will let you go. And we just really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for another amazing episode of Lying About History." even if the audio was so hard. But you know what? We're doing our best to bring you the historical heroines that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Like us on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, uh, and our website is windingaboutherstreet.com, where you can find all of those, plus anywhere you want to listen, plus our merch, plus buy me a coffee, plus our Patreon. And then Also, you- rate us five stars wherever you listen, because they'll piss off a Nazi. Yeah. Fuck Nazi. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going About first Street. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.